You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes Deadair Knipe here with, always... Typical Lydia. On today's show, we're going to be handling the 1988 slasher classic, Maniac Cop. We're manhandling Maniac Cop. Much like the way that Matt Cordell manhandles people. Absolutely anyone he comes in contact with. I, I kind of like it. I kind of like it. With his icy cold hands, you can relate to that. Yeah, I can. Because I myself am icy cold. I am... However, five foot fucking two, so I would be no match for Mr. Cordell. It's true. Is it Officer Cordell? It would be Officer Cordell. He seemed like a beat cop to me. A super cop, though. Well, now he's a super cop. Well, beforehand, before before he died, he was a super cop. They would specifically refer to him as that in the newspaper, which I thought was cool. Because in my brain, the only super cop is Jackie Chan. <laughs> you know, Maniac Cop is kind of like almost on par in some ways with how much I do like the cold, stoic manhandling of people done by my darling, Michael Myers. Well, it's interesting that you were to say that. In the late 1980s, the slasher phenomenon had happened and it was on a downward spiral. People were just throwing a lot of spaghetti at the walls. Or a lot of cops across (laughs) fucking parking lots. (laughs) As it were. We had kind of edged past the idea of a singular human maniac for a long time. The ones that were continually getting sequels were our more comic booky superheroes or supervillains, I guess. Our, our Freddies and our Jasons and our Michael Myerses. So in comes Maniac Cop. He's got a sweet gimmick. He's dressed like a cop. Yeah, he's got his uniform. His he's outfit. Got his, yeah. He's, he's got his uniform. And he's huge, and he's hulking, and he doesn't say anything. And he has a kick-ass weapon, a baton knife, sword, baton, baton mm-hmm. knife, And he'll flip it around. Thing. And it's got some wicked uh, little wind noises when he does it. I love that. It's better than nunchucks. <laughs> like, seriously. The way he wields them, for sure. Oh, totally. Even though, once you see the fact that he can literally break someone's neck like a matchstick, it makes you wonder, what's the point of having any other weapon? For sure. For fun, to intimidate people, to tell them you mean business, because he's so used to carrying a baton, because that was like his his lifeline. That was his number one line of defense, then guns, handcuffs, whatever it is that he would typically use to subdue somebody. But that's his number one, I mean business. It's his billy club, you know? Um, police in the UK, I don't know about now, but like traditionally use their batons far more often than police use them here and would ha- swing them around and wield them far more than we're used to seeing police wielding batons now. They're typically at their side, much mm. like their sidearm. Traditionally, gripping a baton would be the number one way to let people know that you mean business. Far beyond taking your gun out you know, would be the first thing you would do. No one wants to get hit by that. Same with their flashlights. That's why their flashlights are 45 inches long and full of like eight D-cell batteries. <laughs> now, what was the genesis of us doing Maniac Cop? The genesis of us doing Maniac Cop? Happy St. Patrick's Day. Right? Yeah. It's about as St. Patrick's Day a film as Maniac is a fucking Christmas movie. It's true. You know, Maniac Cop 2 takes place at Christmas time. 
I didn't even realize. Yeah, yeah. Well, de- there's all kinds of decorations up. It's Christmas for sure. Really? Yeah. All those red flashing lights I'd have never noticed. <laughs> I got com- them confused with the regular red flashing lights around the precinct. <laughs> huh. Well, Maniac Cop takes place on St. Patrick's Day. Yes, it does. Basically, a few days leading up to and St. Patrick's Day proper for the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Mm-hmm. The 50th. It's massive. Do you think that they got those shots at the actual St. Patrick's Day Parade? Oh, probably. Because it seemed like that movie may not have had the budget to close down a street that size and get that many extras together. No, I don't think so. It probably was filmed that. And that would be an interesting thing to look up. That or maybe they did have friends in high places and they could be like, let's, mu- let's stage a parade, guys. And they'd be like, okay, because they got nothing better to do. This is the second William Lustig movie that we've done. Yeah. The first one just being Maniac. Yeah. And for this time, he decided to just put cop at the end of it. Well, why not? You couldn't just do a film about a cop like this without sticking Maniac in front. What are you going to call him? Zombie cop? He's not really a zombie yet. Yeah, not really. Although it's not exactly clear what he is. This movie has a pretty big cult following. One of the things that it has going for it over other slasher movies is the fact that it's got a couple sequels. So our Maniac Cop has been around for a little while. Yeah, not like 12 or 13 sequels. No. Just a nice respectable three. It's got a trilogy. People always want more, though. People do. Like, you you mentioned that when we're watching this. And I thought about it. And, like, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see more Maniac Cop. I'd like to see more plate glass window action. I'd like to see more. Well, I'm not so big on the car chases and the car flipping over and stuff like that. I want to see more guys on fire. Yeah. Who doesn't want to see more guys on fire? That's I want true. to see. I want to see a uh, maniac cop versus Ghost Rider, and then the Ghostbusters come in and try and contain. See, all I this like shit. this. I like this. See, I'm rubbing off on you. You're aversing the maniac cop universe. No, I will. I refuse to call it a universe. Thank you. No, no. And there's no Ghost Rider universe in my mind, okay? I would just like to see that one scene, not even a whole movie. Just a short, thank you. Ghost Rider versus Maniac Cop on fire. Ghost Rider is on fire by default. Yes. Maniac Cop isn't on fire by default, but he spends a lot of time like that. (laughs) Those are some long burning sequences. Yeah, totally. He's not on fire in the first one, which is a crying shame. It is. But he cries out. When he gets, like, a fucking tube in his chest. Yeah, it's like the when Rabbit howls, you know? It's the only sound he makes is when he dies. I like how we skip right to the very end of the movie. Well, no, no, no. We're not to the very end of the movie. Only kind of to the end of the movie. I mean, there's credits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, and there is, like, the one freeze frame. The, it, the most important freeze frame in all of cinematic history. Exactly. This, this movie has a really great horror cast. And one of the original reasons why it got added to our list, listeners, if you're ever curious about how we pick movies on our own, is we've got this big list, and I arbitrarily add movies to it that cross my threshold. I arbitrarily add movies to it that cross my threshold as well. And um, we wanted to do a, a horror movie with Bruce Campbell in it. Oh my god, did I ever. But we didn't want to do Evil Dead mostly because unless it's a commentary track, I have nothing to add to that. Yeah, someday you might even see it on there because that is one that I would I would actually almost be interested in doing commentary track for. But I really wanted to do a Bruce Campbell film. I do have Alien Apocalypse and Man with a Screaming Brain, so mm-hmm. I kind of want to do a double header like that. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, that's not horror enough. So we suggested instead doing Maniac Cop, and then it got bumped up when 
you realize that it takes place, or you remember that it takes place on St. Patrick's Day. And we were also looking at uh, Sam Raimi films, which we do have coming up soon, Drag Me to Hell. And I really want to do that film. And I didn't want to approach some Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell or not. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This, we get the best of both worlds, or at least a little tiny bit of the Sam Raimi world. It's true. He's got a little cameo. And we got Bruce Campbell in it. Doing most of what Bruce Campbell does best. It's true. Although, one of the things that we should point out is that Tom Atkins is in this as well. For the whole first chunk of it, it's his movie. Bruce Campbell doesn't really get introduced, which is really interesting. And if you look at the Maniac Cop 1 and 2 together, how they handle their protagonists, how they hand over... Yeah, it's like everyone's overlapped. Yeah, overlapped. So Tom Atkins, we know from Season of the Witch and Night of the Creeps and the My Bloody Valentine remake, he's in a lot of horror movies. And one of the things that he does best is he plays grizzled cops that are just treating this material very seriously. Trying to figure everything out and having to go question people and try and put all the puzzle pieces together. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, he doesn't really have any some sweet one-liners like Thrill Me or anything like that. But what he does have is like from the first scene where he's examining the body of someone that he knew, he's just delivering all this extra fucking dialogue so seriously. I, I like that scene, the it's autopsy. A, it's, a, it's an amazing it's, scene. It's the coroner that I like so much. The coroner is great. Um, yeah. Most of what Tom Atkins has to say in that uh, scene is totally forgotten by me already. It has the, the it has the the last line of that scene is fantastic where he says you must have been so scared and then you saw a cop. Okay, I lied. I do remember that because we were talking about how this film is so topical today mm-hmm. and even more so a year ago when there was devastating riots. Now, police brutality, I don't want to make the whole show about police brutality because no. the whole show is going to be about police brutality. It's true. It's a maniac cop we're talking about. But that particular line just transcends the age. It was made in 1988. Yep. Yes, there was police brutality. Of course. Always. And and specifically in larger cities. And there was a lot of police brutality in New York at the time. And a lot of corruption. So it had a lot of weight then. It has... A metric fuck ton of weight now, that particular mm-hmm. line. And so does the scene coming up shortly after that where there's a lady driving in her car after the news of the maniac cop has broke. Mm-hmm. And everyone is in a state of panic, basically. It's not quite like Son of Sam kind of panic, but it's panic nevertheless. And people are afraid of those patrolling the streets to keep us safe. And... This girl's car is overheating, and there's smoke pouring out because her rad's busted or something. And she's sort of in a like a warehouse area, some sort of industrial area. And there's a police officer trailing her, and her car gives up and won't start again. And he gets out of his car, I guess, to help her, but just in his stoic, straight, wa- straight spined, slow walking police way. That unnerved her. The fact that he's a police unnerved her this maniac cop is on the news and she gets so uptight and so scared that this is the maniac cop come to kill her not even thinking that this is a regular beat cop coming to help her and she shoots him right in the face Mm -hmm. terrifying that scene in particular upon remake 
would be unfucking real to see now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, the the news footage that they show where general citizens' reactions about the idea of a police officer killing people, most people's attitude is just like, yeah, that's what cops do, right? Yeah, cops like killing people. Yeah. That's why they're cops. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. That's yeah. a fucked up statement. Unfortunately, that would fly so well in a remake. And it's not a wonder. This remake, there's some a bit of more recent news because there's always been a little bit like little blips here and there about news on this mm-hmm. they're going to be filming in the spring in new york which is kind of cool, Very uh, cool and yeah. i hope it does actually happen it seems to be that it will actually happen mm-hmm. it has been in talk since 2011 and i've seen notes on it from 2008 so that's the world we live in man like sometimes people get aggravated with how far in advance that we hear about movies in production when i think back to when i was a kid sometimes i didn't even fucking know a movie was coming out until like hey guess what's coming out next week yeah and you're like oh my god really i had no fucking idea Nowadays, in the age of the internet, where everyone who's working on a movie's assistant or brother or whoever the fuck can just go to any website and be like, hey, guess what they're in talks? Guess what deal is being rumbling? Because when you're making a movie, especially in Hollywood, people that you can make preliminary plans and scripts can get written and they could scout actors and directors and stuff like that and then poof, goes down the fucking toilet. And so you keep hearing about movies starting up and going down and starting up and going down so far in advance. So, I mean, it's no wonder that it would take something like Maniac Cop to so long to get off up the ground because, yes, it's a horror franchise that has a cult following and, yes, they've remade way more obscure shit in the meantime, but I think when you're br- when you're thinking about what maniac cop is specifically, he is a maniac cop. He, yes, he's a maniac cop. But specifically, what the horror movie is, it's a type of slasher that doesn't necessarily work all the time anymore. I mean, back in the '80s, if you made a movie like this, well, it'd probably pan out. But unless you're remaking an immortal super slasher. That everybody knows and everybody loves. Another Halloween, another Friday, another nightmare. You're just like, here's your old favorite, Maniac (laughs) Cop. 20 people are so fucking happy. (laughs) But for the rest of the general population, they don't know who this is. Yeah. I think it's a better choice as far as a remake or a reboot or rehashing or retelling. Oh, yeah. I really do. Because it straddles that line between action and horror oh yeah i like the maniac cop movie quite a bit so i get it and and like we were saying it's super topical now and there's gonna be people that are gonna see this remake uh, assuming that it completely gets made i i'm always kind of like i'll believe it when i have a ticket in my hand there's people that are never gonna fucking know that this is a remake of any kind and they'll be like oh well they made this because of all this the stuff about police that have been going on in the last couple of years no there's enough fan base i think that people would be loudmouth enough to remind the general public as you put it that this was definitely something that they need to see especially with hipsterism being what it is people will definitely be clawing for the 80 dollar fucking dvds of maniac cop that exists out there right well fans of this franchise are always really quick to point out that in their estimation this was the last great new york based horror slasher of the 80s 
It was. And it may mark the end of our fucking continuously covering these New York slashers. And it's like we have a weird fascination with it. I mean, I do, and I admit it all the time. Yeah. But honestly, when we decided to do Maniac Cop, it completely was not on my radar at all that we're doing another New York-based slasher movie. When I decided that, yeah, I, sh- I should pitch this, I was like, why the hell not? Why the hell not? Why don't we just do every fucking... Why don't we just stop our fucking mission statement here and we'll just, like, scratch that, rewrite it, as we will cover every horror movie filmed in New York <laughs> or spitting distance thereof yeah. and Canada. well really it's true although i think that in terms of unless like we're missing a really great one this this at least is going to be it for a little while i'm trying to think if i can think of another one i probably could (laughs) yeah you probably could and there's probably one or two on our list yeah probably is chud in new york chud i think chud is in new york Let's do Chud. Man, I have Chud, so (laughs) be okay. Chud couldn't take place anywhere else. Honestly, if Chud takes place anywhere else, I'll be gobsmacked, flabbergasted, shocked beyond belief. I even have Chud too, Bud the Chud. Of course you do. Of course you do. The one thing that I would like to see not changed in filming this, and it's something that I think that should stick and probably will, um is that general gritty feel and the amazing lighting that they're using. There's a lot of filming at night, too. A lot of outdoor scenes. I really enjoy that. That's one thing um, that the third one gets a lot of criticism, is that it takes place in a hospital. Although mm-hmm. I really like hospital horrors. You know, I was watching the third one, and, I, and as it was, all the killings were happening in the hospital, I was like, I bet Lydia likes this. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I dig the hell out of, out of hospital horror. There's a lot of stuff about... Maniac Cop 3 I don't like, but whatever. Uh, Taste was in a hospital, so it gets a pass somewhat. But um, I much prefer this no real set, not taking place in one building, taking place inside, outside, everywhere. I don't like the car chases so much, like I said, but I do like a large, sprawling, roamable, like, like, universe place, you know, that it's taking place in. Having the full run of a real city is kind of handy. Mm. Um, so I really hope that they maintain that a lot like they maintain that in the Maniac remake. Yeah. Maintain that same sort of feel. Um, there is an eight year gap between having filmed Maniac and filming Maniac Cop, but it has a really similar feel and it doesn't, you, you could present them both back to back and not guess that there's eight years between them. Yeah. I mean, it's a really good example. Um, look, when Lustig made maniac you could imagine he had a fraction of the budget a fraction of the time the fraction of cast yeah i was gonna say a fraction of cast definitely so this is the to me this is where okay you take a movie like maniac this is what this director is able to accomplish with these things what if you gave him twice of everything yeah yeah and 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 what you get is that where you look at this movie and you see and you can feel the aesthetic of Maniac. He's using his same guy for music. Yeah, I was going to say, particular sound, yeah, particular he, lighting, particular yeah. look. Because you can guarantee that a guy like that would bring over, oh, this guy, these people work on with me on these films. 
right? And so this guy's coming and this guy's coming and this woman's coming. and That's what achieves that particular aesthetic. Exactly. And then you, now you have Maniac Cop and look at it now. We have more money, more cast, more time, and this is what I do. And it's basically just a glossier yet still maintaining its gritty sensibility of Maniac. Even though you're dealing with a far more fantastic storyline. This is not a, a loner killer with mommy issues. This is a superhuman gimmick killer in a cop uniform. The lighting is really cool because it helps hide his face. Because th- this is not a guy that wears a mask. He's wearing a full fucking uniform with white gloves and the hat and everything. Shiny. Yeah, we get really intimate with his uniform in the opening title sequence. Because mm-hmm. we get to see him... A suit up. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, up to and including, like, it, he, he puts his name tag right on front, so we know it's a dude named Cordell. Yeah, we don't see his face, so. No, we don't see his face until the very end. And this is a lot of backlighting. It's a lot of clever camera angles. But this movie does not uh, wait to ramp up. It is, you, you, are, you have multiple deaths within the first 15 minutes of the movie. And, and then you get to meet Bruce Campbell in 20 minutes in. Yeah, that's very interesting. Again, when we're introduced to uh, the Detective McRae character, which is uh, Tom Atkins, you kind of feel like it's his movie. It's him going through the procedures. It's him giving information to the media. And that's where the, the sort of sensational title of Maniac Cop comes from because, I mean, it's it's a media spin on it, which I liked. It's almost like the same thing that they do for, like, superheroes. We're like, oh, the, the, the media dubs them these ridiculous names. The and same so, thing they do for serial killers. Yeah, exactly. Um, He's their Buffalo Bill. He's their son of Sam. Yeah. Although some of them name themselves. Like yeah, it's BTK true. Yeah. named himself. Zodiac didn't name the, himself, did he? No, I think the papers named that particular person. Yeah. Because he was sending the... The Texarkana Moonlight Murderer. He's, uh... <laughs> yeah. I like when the media gives people names, buzz names, whether it's going to be a super villain in a cartoon universe mm-hmm. or a comic universe or a real-life serial killer. The maniac cop shtick, you really thought it was going to be this super cop, Atkins, versus super cop, villain cop. Mm-hmm. And that was really where you thought that that was going to go up until your dark horse, yeah. basically. When we're introduced to Bruce Campbell's character, he's playing this guy, Jack, and he's a cop. He's a beat cop, and he's got a very strained marriage. He's We're introduced to a, a flawed hero, which what Bruce Campbell seems to exclusively play. Yeah, it's a, it's a combination of like flawed hero and everyman. Yeah. And so the introduction to this plot point in the movie is the strangest thing to me. But I suppose it adds a richer atmosphere. But anytime that I see any plot point where the movie could function without it, I'm always just like, what? I wonder why they felt like they needed this bit. But what they have is Bruce Campbell cheating on his lady. And then she goes, she follows him. And they have like a really weird conversation beforehand where it seems like they don't really like each other. But at the same time, they're trying to make their marriage work. But then, even after everything that Bruce Campbell says, we find out that she's cheating on, uh, he's cheating on her with another officer. <laughs> when she opens, when his wife follows him to the to the sleazy motel, budget in, which I, I guess I guess the sign like shithole motel was taken. Um, it is in the shape of an upside down cross, so you got to give it a little bit of credit. Oh, I do. They tried. 
But the, one of the things that that struck me when that when it gets revealed that he's cheating on his lady is when she opens the door and she hears like grunting sex noises. Yeah. And then when the door gets opened, they're in a position where I I'm thinking, what sex act are they doing? They were in between positions. Oh, is that what it was? Well, I'd guess so. Because I know everyone's talking about like pegging these days because it looked like to me that they were spooning, but he was like the little spoon to me. Who knows? Could be. We didn't see under the sheet. She could have a strap on. on. Yeah. Yeah. All sorts of implements. They're cops. Where's their batons? Are there batons on the back of the chair outside the room? I, th- I saw their hats. I saw their hats too. I don't remember seeing batons. We should go back to the tapes. Let's see. Yeah. I didn't pay that much attention to what position they were in at all. So I'm no real help there. Sorry. These things. I like the first thing that he says is, why did you follow me? Not sorry or not anything. The first thing he says is, why did you follow me? (laughs) That doesn't, that doesn't strike me as odd because a lot of times when people get busted on shit, they'll be like, you went through my phone. Are you one in my computer? I guess so. I don't know. I've never been in that position. So. Uh, me either. He says paper thinly. <laughs> Shut up. I, I, I don't know if it's to... Because we got to like him, right? Yeah. We have to like him. From even this, this little tiny shitty thing to establish his relationship with another officer outside of just like a workplace romance or something that would be a little too sweet maybe. Mm-hmm. Like we have to love hate him. The same way we're kind of... Some people would love hate maniac cop himself, right? So they want to create this like uncomfortable like that you have for Bruce Campbell's character Jack. Um, in that, at first, you almost think he's gaslighting his wife because she's acting fucking crazy and she's second guessing herself and saying like she doesn't want to be home alone and she hears noises at night and then correcting herself like th- she thinks she hears noises and then he leaves. Where you're thinking, okay, his wife is fucking crazy. So this is a frazzled cop. That's about to be introduced to the story. How? We don't know, but it's going to be tense because he's like a frazzled cop. And then his wife gets like a creepy phone call, sort of reinforcing her fears that he's going out and doing something dangerous or weird and she doesn't trust him and she's scared. Like she doesn't know what she feels. So I I like I like this introduction a lot, actually, even though the wife character is really disposable. You almost don't think she's going to be disposable because she does such a good job um, acting as this way, acting like crazy, following him. And then you find out that she's completely warranted and her fears are completely founded because he is cheating on her. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't stick around. No. She's pulled into a van and then removed toot sweet from the storyline. The maid finds her. After the, the party that apparently happened. Yeah, someone knocked over a lamp. Big party. Big party. <laughs> like walking into a hotel room. Because you used to clean uh, hotel rooms back Very in the day. much so. Yeah. Did I ever? And I was damn good at it too. Yeah. Unfortunately, because the better you are at cleaning hotel rooms, the worse the hotel rooms they give you to clean get. Really? So did you get in there with some like crazy party hotels? Oh, yeah. And when they needed a team of girls to clean up a particularly bad room, I was handpicked to help that sort of thing. Really? Or if someone would encounter a room suddenly that was far too gone for them to handle alone, they would send me. If there was a room that had things other girls wouldn't clean, I would clean them. Wow. Yeah. My favorite... I have many favorite stories. We could take a fucking two hours of the podcast talking about (laughs) some of my favorite fucking things to clean up. But the number one favorite one was the time that somebody decided that they'd eaten way too much pizza pizza 
way too much pizza, way too fast, and they were way too drunk. Everyone in the whole room was drunk. The, the room was an absolute fucking disaster. I can't even begin to describe what kind of disaster it was. But I could see, like, this, the, your CSI mind kind of kicks in when you're cleaning hotel rooms because you're definitely <laughs> okay. doing, like, archaeology while you're doing this. But he was, he or she, was in the shower and had eaten probably about six slices of, well, about three slices of Hawaiian pizza and three slices of Canadian Gotcha. And they were very, very drunk. And this happened probably about four in the morning. And they started yelling to their friends that they were going to be sick. And they needed something because they didn't want to get sick in the shower. Because I guess they wanted to be clean like you want to when you get in or out of a shower. That's the goal, right? So he was aware of his goal. He wasn't too drunk to forget his goal in the shower. Because um, showering things did happen. There was soap used in a little body puff and stuff like that. And acts for men and shit like that. Um, and it smelled nice, except for the puke smell and the pizza. But he needed something to catch the puke. So his friends grabbed a huge pasta strainer and he threw up in the pasta strainer in the shower. <laughs> and you can just, there was puke kind of sprayed all around. So he was yelling and puking and yelling at his friends, probably like, this isn't working. <laughs> it's not working at all. And then he leaned his head out of the shower because there was drips of strained puke on the floor so he leaned out of the shower at one point probably to yell louder at his friends that he needed something else <laughs> and then gave up and sort of tossed it in the back of the bathtub and continued to shower oh wow um so i got to clean that up because it clogged the drain of course because the strainer didn't help very much at all <laughs> but yeah i've never encountered a dead body and that's the number one fear from day one the first day working at the hotel unbeknownst to me there was a police tape set up outside and uh, we just come out of a lockdown i suppose an hour or so before i walked into my very first day at this job i didn't know if someone had jumped from the building uh... i didn't know that till a month later because there's a real don't ask don't tell policy as far as the insanity that can go on in a high-rise hotel um so there was a lot of don't ask don't tell with stuff like that mm -hmm. yeah you have to really talk to a cleaning lady who is comfortable talking about some of the fucked up shit that they see. Um, but there was a horror author whose name eludes me entirely, who had written a lot of horror and read up a lot of forensic things as research and was very familiar with the idea of death. Uh, he was working in a hotel. A lot of horror people work in hotels for some stupid reason. And the fr he walked in on a body in this state with it nearly decapitated. And he quit his job took a little break from writing horror from what I understand mm -hmm. and it shook him unbelievably. So I was morbidly curious is like, is this going to happen to me? It's not like winning the lottery at all. It's, but it is a, a, a little small nagging constant fear when you work in a hotel that you might walk in on something ultimately fucking horrific. Yeah. Never did, but yeah, I think every hotel room has blood in it. If you look close enough. That was like a haunting sentence. It was haunting the day we realized that. So maniac cop. Yeah, her neck was slit ear to ear. Yeah, and we learned this from the least fucking sensitive captain on the force ever. Four weeks to retirement and good. Because first of all, it sounds like he has fucking mega ultra throat cancer. <laughs> that and... I think there's got to be just bad blood between him and Jack. And he's fed up with his post. And he thinks Jack 
responsible. Well, let me tell you something about this police force. They're very easy to jump to conclusions around here. They thought Detective McRae, who had just suggested that we should probably be checking members of their own force, people who have had a history of mental illness or stress on the job or whatever. Well, when was your last psyche valve? Yeah, yeah. Like, like the commissioner instantly just jumps on his fucking back about, didn't you uh, try to kill yourself a long time ago when your partner died in the line of duty? Anyways... The fucking captain in Bruce Campbell's fucking shit. It's like the least... Okay, even if you think that this person is a suspect, you don't fucking talk about a man's wife. First of all, I don't even know if it's his job to deliver the news that his wife has been murdered. And second of all, I don't think that what you do is tell him that with your stupid big Jackie O sunglasses on and then describe it as like throat cut ear to ear and then when he is completely utterly bereft and and is incredulous because it's just so shocking you take off your glasses and then just look him dead in the fucking eye and say you want to see the pretty pictures what the fuck man that's not how you talk to people that is how this guy talks to people that's fucked up maybe he was having a day where someone was like well who wants to go and tell him i will okay he looked like the way that he talked to him and like the fucking his beady little eyes like looking at him while he was saying it not only did he volunteer to fucking tell bruce campbell's character that his wife was dead i bet you he jerked the fuck off beforehand i was gonna say he's like oh yeah i was also gonna say he has kind eyes wes kind eyes you were a bad judge of that. <laughs> no, he does not have kind eyes at all. No, he has very cruel eyes. Yeah. But I will say... Like a fish. As as much as Bruce Campbell's character seems upset about this, I will say that he gets over it in eh, five to ten minutes. Well, he's been planning on leaving his wife, right? Okay, but... It's I, also a film. I know. But the next... I, I really honestly think that this, his captain is supposed to be our red herring. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to think that, of course, he's going to jump to the conclusion that Jack must have killed his wife because he needs somebody to blame it on. Mm-hmm. Which works conveniently with this plot, actually, when you think about it. But it's just handled very strangely. And I don't know. I kind of like it. I like that scene. I like that scene a lot. <laughs> I can't imagine why you would like a scene where a character is talking to another character completely oblivious about how you talk to people in sensitive situations. Yep. (laughs) That's why I also like the coroner. Yeah. Yeah, he just tells it like it is. He doesn't tell it like it is. He puts a little English on his descriptions. You could take that entire scene and all the lines, even the pretty pictures line, the the throat slit ear to ear line... And if it wasn't such a gravelly voice, cruel, close talker like that, it wouldn't seem so fucking creepy and heavy. But it is a creepy and heavy scene. And I like a creepy and heavy scene once in a while. Because we're heading into car chase territory sooner or later. So I need some creepy heavy things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like this creepy heavy scene. And it also brings a little bit out of uh, Bruce Campbell. Because he's right away on the defensive, obviously. Because he fucking didn't do this, right? So right away, we have somebody heavily accusing him. Someone who could be our maniac cop. He's kind of maniacal. He's a cop. Fits the bill. Walks like a duck. Talks like a duck. Or talks like a guy that just gargled a cup full of sand. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) 
He has a big jaw. He could easily be mistaken for, in the right light, this particular maniac cop. So it kind of starts to fit for someone who's like, you know, freshly watching this, right? It sort of kind of fits. Tom Atkins is not convinced. He thinks that someone's setting up Bruce Campbell. Well, Tom Atkins asks too many questions. He does. He does believe that it's too convenient. That There's too many questions that are left. Because if that were true, a person would need to have intimate knowledge of Jack's love life. And no one should know about that, theoretically. He is seeing a woman on the force, but they're being very hush-hush about it. Yeah, the only person that seemed to know was his wife, and she found out just that day. That's true, and then she died. According to Jack, anyway. Mm-hmm. But there's um, a little bit of information that we learn is that uh, Jack, mistress, she told somebody on the force. Mistress makes it sound so innocent. Oh, I mean, I, it's not innocent, but... Uh, it's his girlfriend. It's his girlfriend. It's just basically his girlfriend. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly now, after his actual wife is dead, because mm-hmm. they just, next time they see each other, they get a nice tender kiss, and they're just happy to see each other again. And I was like, all right. In the interrogation room. It's yeah. kind of cool. She lets out that, you know, as as girls apparently do chat about stuff like that, mm. she's told their den mother, as she puts it, a girl that works in the office, mm-hmm. an older, kind of like a police maven. Mm-hmm. I suppose she had at one time been a police officer, but was wounded. Is that how that goes? Well, what ended up happening was this woman was uh, Sally Noland. She was dating this super cop fella and after he was put away in jail and then killed in prison she threw herself off of a building or wind out of a window to kill herself she didn't kill herself instead just very seriously damaged her leg and probably her hip too and now she walks with a cane so she basically works at the police station in uh, administrative sense. She's still a police officer, but she doesn't go out into the field or anything like that. She's played by Sherry North, who at one time, back in the day, back, back, back in the day, like before my day, like mm-hmm. way back. Ancient history. Ancient history. Uh, <clears throat> was basically touted as the next Marilyn Monroe. And if you want to have some fun, if you like cheesecake photos, if you like that Marilyn Monroe and pinup aesthetic, go and take a look for Sherry North. Very, very pretty girl. At this point, doing one of her only horror film roles that I could ferret out. It's the only one that I know of. Yeah. She was 56 years old. So it's kind of cool to see this one-time Marilyn Monroe runner-up mm-hmm. in such a neat little role, mm-hmm. I thought. Like, kind of obsessed woman. Well, she's got a couple of good scenes. She kind of reminds me of Rosanna Arquette in Crash. Aside from being maimed and wearing leg braces and... Being obsessed with somebody, obsessed with a particular man, and willing to do pretty much anything for them. Um, she does play that same similar sort of role. I don't know why. just And I like Crash as a film. but Yeah, it's a yeah, good movie. Very like Rosanna Arquette. But an older version. Where Rosanna Arquette would be if she started dating a super cop after the whole car crash fetish thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can see that. Mm-hmm. Um, we learned that... Matt Cordell was this famed police officer, but very trigger happy. Didn't believe in the death penalty. He was the death penalty. Oh, there's a tagline for you. (laughs) I stole it from the shadow. Of course. The weed of crime bears bitter fruit. Bang, 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 bang. And you make fun of me for being old. (laughs) 
All of a sudden, Cordell gets sent to prison. And while he's pri- and he's remembering all of this after we realize that him and uh, Sally are in cahoots with each other. Through a little bit of exposition, she realizes that, or she exposes that, he's come back. And her intention was that he was supposed to be killing drug dealers and bad people. But he seems to be only killing innocent people. After she leaves him alone, he has that flashback. And he's in the prison, showering. And he gets jumped by three thugs, fellow inmates. And you could imagine that a super cop that had responsible for not only a lot of criminal deaths, but a lot of arrests. So walking through a prison, it would be fucking intense for him. And you could you could see the looks on all the inmates' faces that are instantly plotting his demise. Which was a question about why they didn't put him in isolation, which is somewhat addressed later in the film. Yeah, apparently he refused protective custody. Mm -hmm. Um, And I suppose it's the same sort of idea as what a pedophile faces when they're placed in general population. That could be that many inmates were treated terribly when they were very young. And it begins this like downward spiral into a life of crime. Uh, in a lot of cases, in a hell of a lot of cases, not only are pedophiles reviled in jail, they're reviled for a very fucking moral reason. So it's the same sort of look and it's the same sort of feeling. Of course, he's going to get fucking shanked. Of course, he's going to get the same sort of treatment that Jeffrey Dahmer, unfortunately, got in prison. Why he would refuse protective custody is just a fucking suicide mission. Mm-hmm. And from my point of view. Mm-hmm. Well, he puts up a good fight. He's a naked man versus three men with clothes. A huge naked man. He's very similar to the Hulk in a few scenes. <laughs> Smashing heads, picking guys up, but they overcome him because there's three against one, I suppose. And they're armed and he's not. It's a really beautifully filmed scene. A lot of the filmmaking in this is just really well done. But this scene in particular is sort of outside of every other technique used in this film because it's used in a very filtered light almost like a natural light setting it's a very subdued color palette because they're in a steamy somewhat grimy gel shower stall or shower room and most of the colors are skin hues because they're huge naked tan dudes Mm -hmm. and so it's not that stark black white red blue kind of color palette that we're used to for this entire film it's very soft very pastel in a way mm-hmm. and slow motion and there's no jarring synth or i don't even know what other style the other music is in the crappy music because there's good music in this and there's crappy music <laughs> it's got neither of those and all the sounds are muted as well so it almost takes on the feel of a dream sequence mm-hmm. which it is a flashback but it does feel more like a dream sequence and we're luckily if you watch the entire trilogy you get to see this scene Many times. Well, every maniac cop is someone's first maniac cop. So they have to remind you of Matt Cordell's horrible origin every single time. Yeah, yeah. It is pretty horrible. It doesn't matter who you are. Getting your face cut up like that's pretty... He is a half of a Chelsea grin in the process. Yeah, 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 yeah. And once you get more information about the character, about how you learn that he was set up. But I think uh, another aspect to him not wanting to be put into isolation would have been the fact that they drop hints that he loved his celebrity as this police officer because 
as Tom Atkins' character, Detective uh, McRae, is looking over all of these newspaper clippings and, and information files on this guy, the dude that's handing him the information tells him that Matt Cordell himself used to go in there and read articles about himself. This is like another exposition scene. They're so artfully placed in this film, I almost didn't notice that people don't fucking talk like this guy. It's true, because this guy that's handing him the information not only tells him that Matt Cordell was a dude that came in there and was like an old school cop and and believed in, you know, being like violence is the the way to to dole out justice. Um, He also gives him the information about that Matt Cordell had a girlfriend who had jumped out the window. Now, Sally has all kinds of information because she handles all the administrative stuff. And she's been with the precinct so long that she can move freely. We find out that the reason why it seems like Bruce Campbell's character has been targeted specifically to take the fall for Matt Cordell is because of the fact that she didn't expect that the maniac cop would be killing innocent people. She thought that he would be killing criminals. That he'd continue on doing what he did best. And so what needs to happen now is they need to lay low and there's a guy sitting in jail right now that is going to take a fall for all of these innocent people that you killed, so don't worry about it. Now, it's not entirely clear at this point what the maniac cop is. I mean, I know what he is. He's a maniac cop. What more do you need to know? I need to know why the holy fuck can he get shot a bajillion times and not die? And the idea that the same thing happened to Michael Myers when he's not a strictly supernatural being in the first one, since he is purely and simply an embodiment of evil, the idea that you can't kill evil was the reason why he was not killed when he was shot six times and then fell out a fucking second story window. Matt Cordell was killed theoretically in the prison but he managed through sheer willpower survive and is brought back to life by a coroner who was sympathetic to the fact that he had gotten a raw deal so he's back he laid low for a little while now he's back fully healed as much as you can heal from all that fucking damage he's a mutilated man but they specifically say that not only do they unload two people two police officers unload entire clips of their guns into him the woman specifically says that she shot him in the head twice which we don't see. We don't pointed see. Out. And I noticed that as well, too. But, but like... So, what... By the, look, by the second and third movie, he is a, a walking corpse. Yes. Um, he so, definitely is a zombie cop. He's a zombie cop by the yeah. second one. The first one, he's not quite there yet. No, no. So, So, my question is, what the fuck is he? Hatred. Pure hatred. Not pure evil. Pure but, hatred. Yeah. Because no one can really take the place of Michael Myers in my, in my heart. But... So do you think that since he is brought back as an instrument of revenge, it's like revenge of his own death because he seems to be, he is going after innocent people who are not really breaking the law, which is an affront to everything he represented when he was alive. But now he's also going after people who were responsible for his imprisonment. And just random people because like Cement Guy and park lady were just randos yeah exactly and 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 the park and but i wouldn't say he's like he's killing people who are crossing it like jason Voorhees like kills people that are within arm's length right (laughs) so but like i would say that he has more of a motivation 
than that because they do throw out lines of dialogue that the mayor's in danger and the police commissioner specifically in danger because he'll go to enact revenge on these people. But he does kill some people that cross his threshold. But then he leaves other people alone. Maybe his wires got a little bit crossed when he was probably clinically brain dead for quite some time. It's true. He definitely was fucking dead. He definitely was dead. He was definitely dead. And when he came back, now he's this instrument of destruction. Hatred. Hatred. Yeah. Hatred bought him back. And hatred keeps him going. Yeah. He's a very big, strong man. He has superhuman strength, easily. Maybe the key is in that one line on the television where they're saying that he just likes to kill. Maybe it's not hatred. Maybe it's joy. Joy and love. Maybe that's what brought him back, Wes. Maybe. I don't think you're taking this as seriously as I am. How can I? It's fucking maniac cop. I can't take it seriously. I just can't. Although, that said, the first of the films, I can take as seriously as I can take the entirety of Maniac Cop. The other two I can't take seriously whatsoever. But this one does have a serious note because of the undercurrent of the story and because it is dealing with extreme police brutality against innocent people. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest problem. That's the, 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 not the puzzle, so to speak, but the reason why he must be stopped. I guess he would have to be stopped regardless, but the big reason why he has to be stopped. Mm -hmm. Then he starts, yes, like you said, targeting people who are responsible for putting him away. They have to up their game pretty fast. Mm -hmm. But everyone still thinks that uh, Bruce Campbell and his lady are fucking responsible. Well, of course, the... they have to play Keystone Cops for a little bit of this somehow. Yeah, it's like, and they're so fucking quick to get into there. And uh, 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 Detective McRae, when things come to a head, when they have all the information that they need to clear Jack's name, well, holy fuck, the maniac cop shows up at the precinct and just mows down like all these fucking cops, like fucking smashes them and shit. We hangs don't see them. Hangs them. Well, he does arrange bodies and shit like that. More or less, yeah. Mm -hmm. And Tom Ankins tries to uh, fight off the maniac cop, but gets tossed out a window for his trouble. And now, most confusing of all is the fact that Matt Cordell kills his girlfriend for, I guess, Sally. Smashes up against the wall a bunch of times. In one, on the one hand, I'm like convinced. Okay, his wires are being crossed. Yeah. He doesn't recognize her necessarily, or has twisted the reason why she, you know, keeps supporting him and keeping him around and sort of having his back and being behind him throughout all of this. And he just doesn't understand what he's doing or who he's doing it to necessarily, or maybe. He has decided, you know, enough is enough, and I just want to kill whoever I want to kill, and you're in my way, so I'm going to kill you too. Whereas um, Bruce Campbell's character was a convenient scapegoat, it seemed like at this point he really wants to kill him specifically. And I suppose he's completely off the reins at this point. The fact that he killed the only person that was really on his side, the only person that could really be interacting with him without him fucking killing them. Yeah. Is now dead. And one of the main people in the movie that we thought was one of the main characters is now dead. It's basically just up to Bruce Campbell to p put the final pieces together to figure out what the fuck happens. And we get all that information about Matt Cordell's supposed resurrection, however you want to call it. Which is still kind of shady as to why and what exactly transpired there. Because like you said, if this was just a man, a maniac cop of a man, yeah, 
but a man nevertheless, he wouldn't come back with these superpowers. Yeah. Because they are superpowers. Yeah, for sure. He's a superpowered individual with a gimmicky costume. A gimmicky costume, superhuman strength, basically bulletproof skin? Yeah. Or or if, or we're meant to believe that you could put 12 slugs in him and a couple in his head. Well, they said he's definitely not wearing a vest because, yeah, a couple in his head. They didn't go in him. He wasn't bleeding necessarily, was no. he? No. No, there's no. no other wounds other than his leftover wounds that haven't healed all that well. No, not at all. Considering yeah. the how old these wounds would have been, some of them look fairly uh, fresh. Just right on his face at that. And there's yeah. his hand is sort of maimed. Yeah, I guess sure. that would be defensive wounds from when he was getting slashed. It's true, yeah. And they look very, very fresh the one time we do see him without a glove. I don't know, I still keep thinking that maybe he his brain has just short-circuited. It's a fair assumption. He does have a little bit of reasoning left, but after uh, Jack leaves the coroner's office, because they basically keep Detective McRae's appointment with the coroner, who gives them the extra information, basically saying that even though he was Matt Cordell was pronounced dead, he brought him back and didn't really feel the need to change that. So to sort of let him get off scot-free. And when uh, Jack and his lady are going to leave the... Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I'm going to... I think that's basically the law. Um, Although he did it in an underhanded manner. This all could have worked out exactly like it worked out if he would have, like, filed paperwork properly. But, I mean, it's his Hippocratic Oath. If somebody is is a savable... A doctor needs to save them, and coroners are doctors. So he did have to resuscitate him once he realized he was breathing, because that part is visual. It's not a verbal thing, but you see in the flashback of the, that the doctor's having while he's telling this story to Jack and his girlfriend mm-hmm. that he detected a pulse and then resuscitated Cordell. Even though he didn't die via a death sentence, any sort of execution under the prison and justice system, if you live through an execution in prison you are granted parole from what i understand that may vary state to state and we don't have the death sentence here so we don't we have no precedent in the canadian legal system but if you if you survive your execution you are free to go from what i understand so that's probably not as strange as we take it to be Although that coroner did it in a strange way, he seemed to be like, oh, well, I guess you're up and at him again. See you later. Bye-bye now. Well, that's my Don't point. tell anybody. Shh. My point was not that he brought him back. My point was that he didn't tell anybody. Yeah. But don't worry about it because he's never going to get in trouble for this. And just after that very serious scene is over, we're reminded that it's St. Patrick's Day because the coroner's <laughs> nurse comes in and hands him a green novelty tie. <laughs> and tells him to put it on. Yeah, why? St. Patrick's Day. Cue the marching band. Yeah, big old parade. And Bruce Campbell and uh, his girlfriend, Teresa, is the that character's name. She's the the other officer. They go to, I guess, what would be another police headquarters. The commissioner's office? Something. Something where the parade was happening and the commissioner and the cap and the police captain were. Teresa wants to warn them that the maniac cop is going after them because they find out his secret origin and realize they're probably in danger. Now, Bruce Campbell is just going to like sit back and stand on the street where hundreds of police officers are. And he's just evaded capture. So they're all definitely looking for him and it's crazy to me how like when Teresa gets up into the office the commissioner and the captain are just yeah so uh looks like uh 
Detective McRae uh, called me and left a message on my machine and said that a woman was helping at the precinct. I thought it was interesting. It's like he knew Sally's name when he left that message. I don't know why he didn't just say it, but I guess he didn't say it. So these two cops could pretend or sorry, could jump to the fucking conclusions because that's what they do that like, okay, it's fucking ridiculous to me that these two guys could just be so willing to believe that two officers killed Okay, you could maybe say that two trained officers are killing innocent people on the street. But you telling me that two fucking officers, one of which was fucking in prison without any weapons or any means to do this type of shit. And so she and him somehow killed everyone out of fucking other trained police officers in a precinct. Like Bonnie and Clyde, they're in love. You can't stop it. I'm not even saying that. Like, like the, the fucking sheer ability of two people to kill all those cops is ridiculous to me. It is absolutely like, ridiculous. And, but they're just like, oh. And the fact that McCray didn't say Sally's name, like at the beginning, he didn't even know who she was, even though she's worked there for 20 fucking years. Yeah. And he... Is an older cop. Yeah, he should know this. Yeah, He's been there for years, too. Exactly. So he should have, like... And he's definitely probably gotten stuff from information management, so he's probably dealt with her before. And he recognized her description. So maybe he forgot her name. I don't know. That doesn't seem like a very good cop detective thing to do. Forget people's names. Considering the fact that, like, Matt Cordell, he was on the force at the same time as McRae because because Cordell only died two, three years ago. And so he wasn't in prison for very long. That means he was an active member of the force less than five years ago. That dude was at the fucking same precinct. Yeah. And it's like, you didn't, you, Matt Cordell was one of the most famous cops. Maybe he's like me and he just forgets people's names and he's just like, I don't know, is that that lady, that girl, that guy, I don't know. Super cop. Yeah, I worked with him, I think. <laughs> I don't know. Then that would make him a shitty detective, but... Well, the commissioner and the captain gotta go do stuff, but it's not gonna stop them from like, booking Teresa with one of the worst actors that I've ever seen in anything. Yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's like you'd mentioned, there's a lot of these little bit parts. There but is. that particular scene is glaringly horrible yeah he's like hey i could act better i know and i hate saying that type of shit it's like when you look at, i'm not an actor it's it's like when you look at art and you're like i could have painted that it's like i hate that type of shit i hate that attitude too yeah. but but at this point i feel like yeah i think that i could act better in that scene more convincing because you want to talk about somebody that just sounds like they're reading lines this guy sounds like he's reading lines and doesn't even really understand what the lines mean or care um and we sort of like posited maybe he footed some money because he wanted to be in a movie and he wanted a specific role with a specific end or but it's crazy to me because there maybe someone's brother yeah that's what i thought i was like is this somebody's cousin or something yeah there's there's a bunch of character actors that are in this movie because of the fact that there's a lot of bit parts i mean there's a lot of this movie is presented as a very fleshed out version of new york so there's a lot of cops in the force and a lot of these cops have lines a lot of these cops come in for one or two scenes they're either killed off or we just don't see them again um there's people in the news footage you're if you're uh shooting in new york which this movie predominantly was you have a plethora of actors to choose from oh my god yeah everyone's lining up Oh, exactly. As, and, and you could like, even, if you want to film an actor lineup, you could put out a call for actors to line up, and the actors would line up. Exactly. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you have there's so many TV and there's so many 
uh, theater actors that are available that you could just cherry pick the best ones. And and it's just like, hey, man, you come in and read a few lines for one scene. You're going to be on the set a day. Yeah. And then and then you're done. So, yeah, who the fuck wouldn't want to do that? And it's like, this is the fucking best you can do? And and I don't even mean to, like, the reason why it bothers me so much is because this guy has a lot to do, if you yeah, think about it. Yeah, it's kind of a spotlight as far as bit roles go in this film. Because yeah. even the, the cop that has to drive her later on, and he ends up in a little bit of a car chase. Yeah. He's probably a stunt driver. I don't think he has any lines. He's got a couple. Yeah, but he does a lot more footwork. I and mean, even you could have swapped those two gentlemen. Yeah easily and i think that the one that has to book her would have made a much better driver because he has a lot less lines and a lot less reactions to do fuck it you could take any to pick pick a bit role the the two cops that come in on bruce campbell in the police station and he tells them to get down on the floor take one of those guys and swap it with that dude because one those dudes had like three lines this guy has to have a whole conversation he's like sit down Sit down just there. He's like, what's the rush? We got the whole commissioner's office to ourselves. At first, I thought, I was like, oh, gross. You're that guy. (laughs) You're you're like, Therese is a a pretty blonde police officer, and you're going to fucking perv all over her. Gross. Ew. Um, But he's not really. And then he kind of just wants the spotlight. He wants to be the hero. Yeah, that's what he wants. He wants her to give him inside dope on the maniac cop so he can arrest him so he can become a hero. And I said to myself, that's better. I like that motivation for this cop, but this is not important because he literally could have just said, he could have just booked her immediately. Yeah. And, and the exact same thing could have happened. But yeah. if you're going to pull the taffy on this fucking scene, which I guess is for time or something. You could at least have somebody that's not reading off of a fucking teleprompter. <laughs> you fuck. It's so bad. Yeah. But he gets fucking knifed. And I guess Teresa isn't nice enough to try to save him. But even but he's dead. He drags him across the floor for a little while. And, <laughs> and simultaneously, Bruce Campbell is arrested by SWAT, who are down at the parade grounds. Of course, they instantly recognize him. Well, everybody's at the parade grounds. And I think that's part of why there are so many bit roles in this, is that, like, okay, we have these tightly knit precincts that we're dealing with. We have this kind of small community of police officers that we're very intimate with. And it's St. Patrick's Day in New York. So there's like probably 75,000 fucking cops mm-hmm. just littering the streets. So we have, to, we can't just use these same ones because eventually, and it would have been a lot less noticeable, I think, if it wasn't for that one glaring actor that was phoning it in, in the most bored looking way. If we wouldn't have had that, we wouldn't have noticed all these bit parts. We would have just taken it like, oh, there's a lot of police officers available in this particular day, in this particular world. We wouldn't have noticed it so much. If we would have only had, like, the cherry-picked amount of police that we've already met, would have been, like, this this world seems too insular when we already know how big this area is that they're working in and that it's St. Patrick's Day with 75,000 cops littering the streets. Just saying. No, 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 that's a good point. Yeah. So I can see why it's treated like that. It's just that one guy sticks out. It is true. Where Bruce Campbell is tossed to the back of a paddy wagon, screaming and hollering that you got the wrong guy. Which I do wonder if police officers call it a paddy wagon or if that's just something that most I, people call it. I only know that term from like TV and shit. 
So I hadn't heard that term since I was a kid. Well, this movie came out when you were almost a kid. No, you weren't. You were an adult. <laughs> I was 13. Oh, okay, so you were a kid. I was a kid. A pretty adult kid, but a kid nevertheless. Oh. Yeah. We're treated to that car chasing that you like so much. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bruce Campbell does what Bruce Campbell does best. I do like that part of it. And I wish every car chase would have a guy in a little tiny fucking spot being jostled around like a one of my deliveries in the back of a FedEx truck. <laughs> Take that, FedEx. Doing exactly what he does best, though. Physical fucking humor slash horror comedy mm-hmm. slash action. And it's funny because this movie doesn't have a lot of yucks. It could be funny to people because of the fact that it's just this invincible cop running around New York killing people. And the coroner's pretty hilarious. The first one, not the second one. Yeah, but even then, I can't imagine that getting a lot of side-holding laughs, you know? <laughs> people just might be like, uh, but they won't give it... You know, there's not a lot of jokes considering how ridiculous the concept of the movie is, which I like. Well, if you want to see not a lot of jokes for how ridiculous a concept of the film is, we should revisit some Astron 6 films. We yeah. just really should. Because funny, yeah. Oh, yeah. Heavy, yeah. Gory? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, what we need to do is watch the trailer... For, or fake trailer. I, I, I feel bad calling it a fake trailer because I want it so badly to be real for Biocop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's, you know, he's kith and kin with our friend, the Maniac Cop, Biocop. Why is he alive? We don't know. <laughs> Why is fucking Maniac Cop alive? Same reason. What we need to do is watch that trailer. And that might unlock some mysteries of our friend Maniac Cop. It might. When Teresa gives chase, she jumps into a car with another bit cop character. He delivers a couple of lines. He ends up um, being the one that drives her to the scene. And he just kind of like calls her back up, shows up, gets instantly blown away. and With his own shotgun, no less. And Bruce Campbell like tries to fight Matt Cordell. But Matt Cordell's got some superhuman fucking strength. So no matter what he does, like he can't really hurt him. This is a dude that shrugs off bullets. Yeah. So I don't know what you plan on doing to him. I like to count how many bullets he gets shot at him through the course of these three films. It's probably somewhere like 400. Yeah. Especially as, as um, especially we get into the sequels. Man, he gets shot a lot in the second one. Yeah. Holy fuck. One of the things that's really frustrating about this character, which is good for keeping the illusion that Jack could be the one responsible, is the fact that he turns tail and runs a lot. He's got a little bit of the Voorhees, now you see me, now you don't powers. But by the time you're in the final scenes and he hears cops uh, coming, he is very much aware that he doesn't want to get caught by police. So he gets into a car and runs. Bruce Campbell, heroically, I guess, like charges after him. I think it's more of the, oh, no, you fucking don't. I'm not taking the fucking heat for this. Yeah. So he gets it. He grabs onto the side of the vehicle, gets blown through the front doors of a warehouse, somehow finds the strength, the will to to hold on while he's punching Matt Cordell in the mouth. Then the maniac cop drives into that, uh, what is it, like a fucking tube? It's like a, it's a big, it's a big giant metal bar. I think it's a mast. And it, and it's, and it's the first thing that seems to really hurt him. Yeah, because he, he cries out in pain. Yeah. He does. And it quote unquote kills him. I guess. And he drives into the water. It's honestly, it's not my favorite end to 
to a movie I've ever seen. It's not a, my favorite end for the villain, but it's a pretty decent end for a movie. Like, it's not a good end that you're wanting for Maniac Cop. You kind of want something a little more spectacular. Maybe you want to set him on fire. You for wanna... 45 minutes of the movie. Yeah. That's what I like a lot about, um, particularly Maniac, Maniac Cop 2. I'm, it's like this weird scenario where, like, you love sequels of horror movies a lot i'm usually like no the original this is what we want to watch but when i was watching maniac cop 2 today i was like fuck i almost kind of just want to do maniac cop 2 and I- ooh, i was watching it well it was on when i was in the house because that's what happens with maniac cop 2 I, it's just not my favorite there's a few scenes i like and i will like i would watch them over and over i wish mm-hmm. it was just a, a short film called <laughs> cop walks through plate glass i don't know <laughs> Plate glass cop. <laughs> like, I, I I would watch that over and over. But I was watching it and thinking, like, oh, I hope Wes doesn't want to renege on the first one and do the second one because I don't want to. Because it is opposite day here on the Dead Air podcast. <laughs> and I hate sequels. <laughs> Unless they make more, then I would probably like them because I wouldn't mind seeing, like, Maniac Cop Bloodlines. <laughs> or Maniac Cop versus Maniac Cop versus whoever, or like Maniac Cop Garbage Day, and that one's specifically for Chris because he would love that. I think that um, I'd like to see more Maniac Cop sequels because they do a good job of making him progressively more fucked up in mm-hmm. every movie. Like in the first in the first Maniac Cop, you can maybe get away with like, yeah, he's probably alive. He looks alive. The second movie, he does not look alive at all. He looks no. like a fucking corpse. And by the th- and by the third movie, he looks like a fucking. He basically is a corpse. And I think yeah. the the natural genesis of Maniac Cop, Maniac Cop is into Biocop, so we mm-hmm. need Biocop film. Basically, that would be the fourth Maniac Cop. Maybe Maniac Cop three has kind of like a Bride of Frankenstein thing going on though. Mm-hmm. But um. Uh, but anyway, just to cap off the first Maniac Cop, so of course they bring that paddy wagon up after everything settled down. Bruce Campbell and Teresa are okay. They have enough fucking police officers with like Uzis pointed at this truck to melt anything with a spray of bullets. But of course he's not there. We pan down and there's a lone hand on the dock reaching up and we freeze on that. And then, oh shit, the Maniac Cop is not dead. Very Voorheesian. Very Voorheesian. Unfortunately, because I really dislike, like, as much as I'm like, oh, this like Michael Myers, that like Jason, you know, he it really is his own thing. He really, really is. He is his own thing. Uh, the Matt Cordell character has his own unique storyline, his, his own unique background. It works for him. His own unique look. His own unique look. If you were to say he's a he's a hulking, super strong, very resilient, semi mute character, because he does make some noise, and in the second movie he utters his own name. But um, even with that description alone, you're going to peg three or four supervillains, horror supervillains specifically. Yeah, I, I am for sure. But what I'm saying is, is when we boil things down to their base properties, a lot of things sound like everything else. Mm-hmm. When you're creating characters and you want to create a certain archetype because you want your movie to have this thing in it. I guarantee you that Larry Cohen, who wrote this flick, just had the idea of, you know what's big? These super-powered slashers. I want one of those. How do we do that? And so he took the base idea of these super-powered mute slashers and he made it a vigilante cop. 
and he gave it his own unique background and all these little extra nuances. Better approach it the other direction of, I want to write a film about a vigilante cop that sort of, in what some way, comes back from the dead to exact some sort of justice. Plus kill innocent people, because that's fun. And then it just morphed into, well, what are people afraid of? We have to make people afraid of this cop. People aren't supposed to be afraid of cops. So we have to make this a fearsome cop. And then all of these things just sort of stuck to him, sort of like a Katamari. I know that Larry Cohen is noted for really digging police angles in his storylines. A lot of his movies will have that kind of shit in it. So you might be right. Maybe he started out with a, a cop idea and added on the slasher, the super slasher sensibility. Yeah. I just, I, I suppose my point basically is just, is just like anyone heavily criticizing this franchise could easily just say, oh, it's a, it's a, it's Friday, it's Jason Voorhees in a cop uniform. And I jokingly call it that. To me, it's always like Jason Voorhees went out for Halloween and, and was just like, I'm, I'm a cop this year. And, yeah, and, it's St. Patrick's Day. I need to blend in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's more like Michael Myers. But you could say the same thing about Chrome Skull. You know, yeah, at exactly. a distance, they all look exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I think like... Except one has a sexy Chrome Skull. He does a very sexy uh, Chrome Skull. I think, though, that, yeah, if, if you want to look at these... When you love this stuff, you will note the craftsmanship of these characters. And I think that the Matt Cordell character has one of my favorite uh, backgrounds. And honestly, the the first and second film close that storyline perfectly because you know that there's still more people involved. And then the angle of, like spoilers for the second one, but making the, the, the corruption that put Matt Cordell in jail and die in disgrace being removed and saying like he he will get the last revenge on the people that killed him in the prison and then have a state funeral and be buried with honors the idea that that could put his soul to rest i was like ooh, i really like that fucking angle um and also you're shown that the character has a lot more intelligence than other slashers who just seem to be more forces of nature yeah so yeah i think that it's a shame if people were to be reductive to the maniac cop character and just say, oh, it's a ripoff of this, a ripoff of that. Sure. I mean, yeah. But, like, because like, everyone needs to make money and this works. So let's just put a slasher and make it a cop thing and do that. Yeah, and then it would be like, okay, let's, that's not what it's about. It's not about making money. It's not about doing what works. It's about we want to scare people. So what scares you? Hmm? Yeah. We're doing a cop show. We want to do a cop horror. Describe the killer. And everyone in their fucking infinite creativity will probably end up with fucking Maniac Cop. <laughs> probably. There's nothing new under the sun, you know. And it's not really about reinventing the wheel or if it's not broke, don't fix it. It's this is what scares people. He's fucking scary. Yeah. And when you put him in that sheath of pr- police and police brutality, that whole story, it just sort of writes itself. Yeah. It's got some really nice layers to it. And I think that, like, my thing always is, okay, I approach any creative thing as work more than anything. And I'm always just like, okay, these are the elements that this apparently needs to contain. How do we make it good? And I think that the elements that they put together in this soup and then said, how do we make this good? And that's all the nuances to the character that I really like. And that's all the layers to the story and the commentary about police brutality, that it's good. Even if the, even if, because if someone goes to you, puts at your feet, Kill a cop movie. And you're like, that sounds dumb. Okay, put that put that knee-jerk reaction away and say, okay, this is what we have to make. How do we make it good? 
um, the commentaries about police brutality and all that kind of stuff. Those are the extra little bits that you say, oh, yeah, there's actually a lot more to this. But when you just boil it down to what is this movie? And then you're just like, oh, it's an invincible cop. <laughs> it's, an, it's, it's Jason Voorhees in a cop uniform. That's what harsh critics will say. And they'll be like, no, I don't like this. Yeah. But people who dig this flick will like all the little See life. all these other things. And, yeah, the commentary behind it, the, yeah. the story of the in, individual characters. I even like the story of Jack's poor dead wife, you know, yeah. little tiny stuff like that. Yeah. Um, just how, like, scant corruption, mm-hmm. people falling through the cracks like Maniac Cop basically did, mm-hmm. fell through cracks of the system. Mm-hmm. He's a victim of the system, Wes. And you can get behind him more than a lot of other slasher characters just because... You... But at the same time, not. So there's like yeah. sort of this duality, same way with where you love, hate Jack. You don't... He's not a good guy, really. Not at all. But you don't want him to die, Yeah, I guess. Which is a unique position for me to be in. <laughs> and I pretty much just want everyone to die and don't like anybody. I sort of like Maniac Cop, of course, and like you said, get behind him. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, it's like he's just fucking gone berserk and killing people. Mm-hmm. He's short-circuiting. Mm-hmm. Maybe I feel for him. Like, I don't know. By the second movie, he seems to have more of a plan. But, oh, kind of. But but by the first... In, in the first movie, when he really loses control at the precinct, mm-hmm. he's... Yeah, like he's fucking, he's done, he's gone. He's basically is viewing Jack as, as like the final thing to kill, I guess, because he's obsessed with killing that dude. And, uh, you know, gets there eventually. Mm-hmm. In another really ballsy move. I do like his weapon. Speaking of ballsy moves and when he gets there, that's the one thing that I think that kind of sets him apart. I mean, we've talked before about how Jason has his machete, but mm-hmm. does Jason really have his machete? No, because he kills you with whatever he fucking wants to, and he doesn't use his machete very often mm-hmm. at all. Um, Freddy Krueger has his finger knives, mm-hmm. which he uses like nine times of the time, or he kills you with with yourself, or he kills you with a giant worm version of himself or, or whatever he's doing. In the dreamland, there are no limits. Exactly. So he kills you all kinds of ways. Maniac Cop doesn't always use his amazing fucking hidden sword baton. Mm-hmm. Or it's more like a knife. But it gets longer, I, find, I think. I don't know. I'd have to measure his sword, <laughs> which is me walking into yet another that's what she said. But <laughs> I, I'm positive it's longer by the third one. Certainly more menacing. Yeah. And he flips it around like a fucking ninja. Yeah, I do like that. I, I, I like that. Then again, by the, by the third one, he's like throwing a guy in midair, pulling out his gun, emptying a clip, and like putting it back, and then the guy drops dead on the ground, like just full of bullet holes. So at that point, he's like fucking getting style points and shit for how he's killing people. Sort of like I used to basically play Grand Theft Auto only to steal ambulances and drive them off of high buildings. I was like, oh, I didn't do any missions. I never fucking played that game. I just drove ambulances off of really high things. Basically. Style points. That's what it's all about. No wonder people think it's a ridiculous movie if they've watched the other ones. I know, right? Before, now, they, before they lost the rails. Has it been, it's been one year since Robert Czar died, right? Uh, yeah, he died... Almost um, basically exactly a year ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a, a heart attack, I think. Yeah? yeah? Yeah. Or something like that? Yeah. So it's been a year so or so. I think exactly a year since Robert Tsar died. Yes. A, a, about a year, yeah. He passed away on 
April 29th. It was a leap year, apparently. Was it? Yeah. Oh. I think so. I'd have to double check on that. But I can't think of who would replace him. Like, replace him in a remake, so to speak. Okay. You basically need a, a giant actor. Yeah, a giant actor. Who would you who would you cast as the new Maniac Cop? I haven't looked to see if they've done any casting information. I don't think they have, but... Uh, if they were doing it now, you do, like, Kane from See No Evil. Oh. I was a pretty fucking big Kane fan for a passive wrestling fan mm-hmm. that I was. Mostly because I watched it for The Undertaker. Yeah. I used to watch wrestling as a kid with my dad. Um, and then got back into it when The Undertaker became a thing because he's fucking Undertaker. And that's pretty cool. And Paul Bearer was funny. And mm-hmm. then the whole Kane, Mankind, Undertaker storyline was kind of interesting. Yeah. As yeah. far as comic books. Like, I, I view wrestling a lot like a comic book universe. Because yeah. it fucking is. It's comic books come to life. As far as that evil angle, I could care less about any other wrestler really but the twisted twins pictures kind of ruined kane for me was that it's just not interesting they're not very good films the second one's kind of terrible i never really i don't like the see no evil movie i've never seen the second one but um i'm just thinking about in terms of a big dude who's kind of ugly anyways and yeah i mean what would really be asked of him you could get you could get a really big stunt guy to do it but I mean, if you wanted to give him a little bit more business, because the Matt Cordell character is not entirely mute, and, and he does need to be able to do other things. He needs to be a really present physical actor, because that's the number one thing about his character. You can tell at a distance from his stance, same with Michael Myers, mm-hmm. right? So they have to really be able to dial that in and not ham it up, because mm-hmm. that's probably, and if there's any aggravation to be had with this character, it's when he starts to ham it up. You want him to not ham it up. He has to be stone cold and stoic. Well, Steve mm. Austin. We could throw Steve Austin in there. He's too. He's not big enough. Not big enough? I found that my first suggestion in my mind was Brock Lesnar. He's too big. Kane's almost too big. Because mm-hmm. there is a too big for a maniac cop. I suppose when you're getting to the point close to seven feet tall, it is a little too big. Yeah, for like anything. Speaking of too big, this is the one film i think where bruce campbell's chin seems in perfect proportion might be the uniform might be the uniform might be pitted against the cherubism that robert czar had suffered it's true if you notice his his face does get larger and larger because of a genetic deformation in his skull and people with cherubism possess some of the most interesting skulls you ever seen a picture of a skull of somebody with cherubism no it's kind of amazing. It's like a, a very typical human skull until you get usually to the jaw area, sometimes out of the cheeks as well. Um, sort of the look of Mask. Remember that film from mm-hmm. the yep. 80s? I, I do. From the 80s, yeah. Yeah, the, the, share. Share, the share flick, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, you're a share fan. <laughs> yeah. Um, same sort of look, right? But underneath, in their skulls, it sort of looks like coral. It's the most amazing looking thing. The only other skull that I enjoy looking at photos of over someone with cherubism, um, microencephalitis is kind of interesting, but not as cool as infants with their baby, or with their like adult teeth and baby teeth still intact because they look like fucking monsters. <laughs> I've seen images of that online. Yeah, yeah. They look fucking de- demonic. But I, I strongly urge you to check out the skulls of people with cherubism. Because I could imagine, as much as he is an amazing maniac cop, 
Robert Zara's skull probably looked fucking hardcore. <laughs> what do we got next for them? Do we have Prowler? We do have Prowler. Is that what we're doing? Is Prowler? Yeah. Because yeah. we're putting Drag Me to Hell off for a little bit. Yeah. We're going to hit Prowler and Candyman. We are going to do Candyman. Candyman. For... Well, don't say it too many times. Candyman. Wait. How many times is that? Shit. Okay, no more. One more? No more. No more. You can't say Candyman too many times. Beetlejuice. Oh, thank God. You broke it. <laughs> Candyman. No! No, I think I think you, when you say Candyman five times, you if you, you said Beetlejuice, so now <laughs> it's like you're going to get like this weird, like Michael Keaton, Tony Todd monster that's going to show up. Candy juice. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been listening to Dead Air. Oh!
again.